All right, well, the most important thing as far as the, the, from the book, from N.T. Wright's book and the reading that you've done this, uh, through this semester, the most important concept, and the concept that this book is, is, um, will be remembered for highlighting probably more than any other book in recent history, is what he calls the belief in life after life after death. This is what has surprised so many Christians and, and non-Christians who have always thought Christianity just teaches life after death. What N.T. Wright has argued in Surprised by Hope is that no, the Bible, the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition has always taught life after life after death. And what he means by that is when you die, you, you don't go to where you're going to be forever then and there. Old Testament and New Testament uh, speaks of death as a, a temporary thing and that after that there will be God who will bring back and bring to life what has been swallowed up in death. And so I'll give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy 32. A lot of people say the Old Testament doesn't teach life after death. It developed later. Uh, a number of things, and, and that's, that's not entirely true. That's, there's some truth to that. Deuteronomy 32. In the Old Testament, it's certainly you don't have the, the fleshed-out eschatology, personal eschatology, doctrines of life after death. You don't have what you find in the New Testament. But you do get inklings of what God's doing and what's going to happen. From the very beginning in Torah, Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, God says, See now that I myself am He. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. This is in the context of a warning of, of God's power and His ability, His sovereignty over all things. But what we see in this is a hint that the way it's ordered, you would think, I bring to life and I put to death. But the fact that God speaks of putting to death first and then bringing to life, not a proof text, but it it hints at the idea that that God has sovereignty over death and that Him mentioning bringing to life after it, people have seen in this the beginning or the the, the shadow of what would become the idea of the resurrection. We see that then flip uh, to 1 Samuel, just a few books over, to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 6. This is Hannah's prayer when she's praying at the temple to God. She's describing the, the qualities of God in prayer, and, and she just, again, echoes that thought of Deuteronomy. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. So, in this sense, you get the idea of God being sovereign over life and death. And once again, life is mentioned after death in this section. And now it's talking about God bringing down to the grave, bringing down to Sheol, the Hebrew term for the grave or the underworld or the place where dead people go. And then God raises up. And what we have here is the beginning of what will be fleshed out, the resurrection of the body. That was the hope for the Jewish people. We won't look at the passages in Job, but if you read through, Job talks about, again, seeing his Redeemer in the flesh, 
being able to vindicate, plead, plead his cause. But flip to Daniel. I'll give one more example in the Old Testament just to hit it again because this is the clearest statement in the Old Testament. And this shows that even six or seven centuries before Jesus, or if even on a liberal uh, biblical scholar dating where they date Daniel to the second century before Jesus, either way, before Jesus is on the scene, you have a very clear encapsulation of the Jewish doctrine of the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12. After mentioning it at this, this time period that he's talking about and uh, this, this period of suffering and distress, then Daniel goes on to make a promise, or the angel goes on to make a promise to all the people whose names are found written in the book, which is a way of talking about those who are faithful to God, who are citizens of the kingdom. Chapter 12, verse 2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That doesn't say we'll become stars. That was a common ancient belief. Uh, whether when one of the Caesars would die, they'd say he's become one of the stars in heaven. The ancient deities, uh, the stars were ancient deities in some cultures. It's not saying that. Daniel's, he's using a comparison. Things that shine and that shine forever, the stars. And so he's using that as a metaphor. But what we have in Daniel 12 is, is the clearest teaching in the Old Testament of resurrection. So the hope in the Hebrew Bible is you have history moving along, and throughout history, people go down to the grave. People die. They're buried. They go down to this place, the grave or Sheol, or later in Greek they'd borrow the Greek term Hades. It just means the underworld. It doesn't mean hell. It means underworld. This, this is just the general concept. And this is where people went when they died. At some point, all people, everybody, yeah. The righteous and the wicked alike. If you read through the Psalms, if you read through Job. But you get this idea that throughout history, people die, people go down to the grave. Then at some point in the future, everyone is going to be raised up from the grave. And there's going to be this time of judgment. And that's what Daniel 12 is talking about. This is the resurrection. And that will lead to new life for God's people. And others will go off to call it punishment, banishment, torment, however, in this image. And, and a, a, an image to describe this, this um, separation from the life to come, not partaking in the life to come, if the life to come is pictured as, a, as, as we'll see in the, throughout the Bible as the new Jerusalem or the new temple, you know, Ezekiel saw it as a temple, John sees it as a, the New Jerusalem, then this is what's outside of the temple, outside of the city gates, using that metaphor. Well, in, Jesus picked up on that, and he, in keeping with the history of, of Jewish thought, he referred to it as Gehenna, because Gehenna 
was the Valley of Hinnom that was right outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it's where you, all the trash and garbage was thrown and fires were burning and worms and maggots and all kinds of just, it was, it's an awful thing. And so that's the image Jesus used, which then gets translated into hell in a number of English translations. But this is not ever seen the same thing as this. Hell and Hades are not in the Bible the same thing. One speaking of a future final reality, one speaking of the current place of the dead, where people that die go. And this, this, is, this idea is carried on into the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't significantly alter this. It makes some refinements and some clarifications, but it doesn't overturn any of it. When you, when you if, give an example, flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and then chapter 5. What the New Testament authors, beginning with Jesus as the speaker and then the authors of the New Testament, what they, what they felt was the event that was going to trigger this resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. You know in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body. That doesn't refer to Jesus. That, that's to us. You know, we, resurrection of the body. Uh, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. This is what Judaism all looked forward to, this event. What we find out in the New Testament, what's going to precipitate that, what's going to trigger that and set it off, is Jesus' return and judging the living and the dead. Jesus is going to return, raise the dead, and judge the world. Now, the question that we've looked at in this course is, Will there be a thousand-year gap in there where he does stuff with Israel, ethnic Israel and the church, whatever? That's, again, that's a question that you're free to explore on your own. But regardless of whether this event is a one-time event or a thousand-year-long event that culminates in him raising the dead, regardless, what Christians have always agreed is Jesus' return, he'll raise the dead. The dead will be raised up bodily. Look at first, or 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 14. Paul says, he's talking about what, what they believe through the spirit of faith. And he says, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. The hope that Paul looked forward to, that all Christians would be raised in the presence of Jesus at Jesus' return the dead would be raised. Even those that we looked at last week with the um, Thessalonians passage, the dead in Christ will be raised and those who are still living will also be caught up to meet him at his return. In other words, nobody's missing out when he returns to raise the dead. So Paul goes on then in chapter 5, he gives a metaphor using the image of tent. And he says, now we know that if but now we know that if the earthly tent we live in, which he's talking about the body where we dwell, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now, this is, a lot of people think that this means Paul is talking about God has built us mansions in heaven and we'll go off to live there forever. But that's not, that's not the contrast. The contrast Paul's making is our body is an earthly tent then how much greater will our new body be, which is not an earthly tent, but a heavenly house? In other words, it's not a temporary dwelling like a tent. It's a permanent dwelling like a house. It's not earthly in origin. It's heavenly in origin. But it's not, it's not talking about a house that we'll go to live in. It's talking about our resurrection body. 
if the earthly tent is our non-resurrection body, the heavenly house is our resurrection body. It will exceed it in every way. Verse 2, he says, But meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. There you go. He spells it out. That it is what we will live in, our body. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it's God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This idea of Jesus' return and the judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. And this is where you will receive what it, whether, what's done, whether good or bad. Just like Daniel 12 mentioned, some will go off to everlasting life, other to everlasting contempt. And what Paul's arguing against here, writing to the Corinthians, is the common Greco-Roman view of life after death, which is your body is an earthly vessel, it's broken, it's bad, it's some Roman views, or Greco-Roman worldviews saw it as evil, as corrupt. That crept into Christianity, this Gnostic view that the body was bad. And so for the Greeks and the Romans, the goal was immortality of the soul. Freeing your body, freeing your soul from this shell of a body so that you can finally dwell in the heavenlies, in the immaterial, in the realm of the perfect that Plato talked about and other uh, philosophers. That was the goal. That is not consistent with the Hebrew Bible, which is what Paul is talking about and what he's speaking from. Paul is giving a, a, a Greco-Roman spin on a Hebrew truth, which is, He's saying we're not, we, we don't look forward to, to, to going about naked. He uses that term. That's what immortality of the soul, that's how Paul saw that as naked. If you don't have a body, you aren't clothed. We weren't made for just immaterial souls. We were made for bodily existence. Paul, being a good Pharisee, a good Torah-observant Jew, would have absolutely affirmed that. So what he's countering is the view that when you die, you'll just go off your spirit will float away or it'll be freed into the cosmos or however people want to flower up the terms. What Paul's saying is, no, that just means you're, you're naked. That means you're unclothed. We don't long for that. We long to put on our true clothing. We long to, to put on our eternal, our, our immortal clothing. And by that, he's referring to the resurrection from the dead to new life, to new bodily life, new corporeal existence. Um, physicality, but not of the same type that we're used to, not of the mortal life that we know of, the decaying life, the, the life that's filled with sin and death and all of that, but new life, incorruptibility, where, where life swallows up the corruptible. And that's a, I'm almost positive that's a, a word play or an image play, the idea of death swallowing everyone up. He talks about that being swallowed up in the end by life. So from the beginning, the Bible has always held that creation is good and the goal, the thing, that, the thing that makes death so bad is that it undoes creation. It undoes 
the people that are made in the image of God. So if God is going to be triumphant over death, he's got to undo or he's got to redo what death has undone. He's got to raise up what death has swallowed down. And you see that imagery everywhere in the New Testament. You can look at Philippians 1.23 if you want to. But the idea is that while we're at home in the body, here, this side of resurrection, this body, then we're ultimately away from the Lord because He's been raised up and glorified to resurrection, and that's what we look forward to. So that's the goal that Paul is, is striving towards, not bodiless existence or immortality of the soul or, or being freed from this shell. He's looking forward to sharing in what Jesus already has. One thing that you see is in the intertestamental period, if you, want to, if you have a, a Catholic Bible or, or you can read the Apocrypha for free online, but the, the, the notion, uh, the life between life and death, or be- this, the grave, Sheol, what happens to the dead, and the hope for resurrection, you see it in 2 Maccabees. And I've given you the verses there, chapter 12, chapter 7, chapter 4, chapter 14. At your own, we won't cover those because it's not Scripture to the Jews and it's not Scripture to us who aren't Catholic. But... Excuse me, in, in, in Ben Witherington's book, Jesus, Paul, and the End of the World, this is, this is an excellent book, but this is a book written for scholars, academic. This, I mean, it, it, it's not a lay... Any, I mean, you can read it. It's just going to be hard. Uh, tracking down footnotes and things like that. He's writing for fellow theologians. But what he, he quotes uh, a theologian, Nicholsburg, who says, who sums it up, he says, in the intertestamental period, in other words, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was no single Jewish orthodoxy on the time, mode, and place of resurrection, immortality, and eternal life. In other words, the view, there wasn't a single specific, there, there, were, there were debates among faithful Jews during the time between the Testaments on what would happen. For instance, some Jews, some, one school of rabbinic thought said, God will raise up the bodies and then solidify them from the, in, from the outside in as He breathes His Spirit into them. Another rabbinic school of thought pointing to Ezekiel's dry bones says, no, God will raise up the skeletons, the bones first, and then knit back together and add to. And, and they would kind of debate on which Scripture teaches. It, it, was a, it was an ongoing debate. It was open. The point was, that's why you see, though, in the first century, in the time of Jesus and before Him, and not very long after, it stopped shortly after, the practice of, of burying the dead and then a year later taking their bones and putting them in what's called an ossuary. And if you were following the news about five or six years ago, probably about six years ago, they claimed us to have found the ossuary, the bone box of James, of Jesus' brother. And there's still debate. That's been ongoing of whether it's real or not. The Israeli Antiquities Authority says no. Uh, ben Witherington and other archaeologists who have had hands-on experience say yes. And back and forth, there's a legal battle because the collector who found it got it illegally off the black market, etc. So it's just in the world of biblical archaeology, it's a little firestorm. But regardless, it shows that in the first century, the belief was that the bones of the person were preserved so that they would be resurrected. Now, it didn't mean that if they didn't have the bones, they were just out of luck. But it was a way of, it was a way of honoring their belief in the resurrection of the body to preserve the bones of the departed in an ossuary, a bone box, and they were about this big. They were as long as your longest bone, your femur, so they were about this big, like, like that. And there's hundreds of them. They were, they were all over the place. 
So, yep. Uh, I'm wondering if some people pull it out of context that uh, when you die, you go directly to heaven. I wonder if they pull that verse of Luke 23, 43, where Jesus was, says, I think to the guy next to him on, on the cross, Surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Mm -hmm. I've always thought maybe they had the comma in the wrong place there. I, I actually agree with you. Um, there, there is commas and punctuation marks are not in the original text. And the question is, does Jesus say, I tell you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise, which wouldn't make sense because Jesus didn't immediately go to paradise. He was dead for three days. And whatever happened during that time, you just have to scratch your head a little bit. Or is Jesus saying, I tell you today, comma, like emphatically, you will be with me in paradise. I lean that way, but I, either way, I don't think it's a make or break. Regardless, in the New Testament period, in the, in the intertestamental time, there wasn't a set belief. It wasn't like a, this is the right answer. There was, it, it was left up in the air. And people speculated and people had different views. And so what we find then is, is what does the New Testament contribute to it? What, what does the New Testament add to the Old Testament? The thing that the New Testament is, hinges on, what it, what it puts all the emphasis on, is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus' death, burial, and His resurrection are seen as, and N.T. Wright talks about this in Surprised by Hope, and, and in the chapters dealing with the resurrection language, that this is seen as what Jews thought would happen at the end of time. Jesus has it happening to Him in time, like before the end. And that, they didn't have categories to think that way in the Old Testament. It was just the resurrection. Even when Jesus, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, when he resuscitates him, Lazarus would go on and die. But uh, when Jesus raises him back from the dead, Mary and Martha run up and, you know, Martha's, Jesus says, you know, do you believe your brother will live again? She says, of course I believe he's going to live at the resurrection. She's thinking of this. And he says, no, 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 I am the resurrection. And anyone that believes in me, though he tastes death, will not die. And so... Jesus puts himself, his impending death and resurrection is the, the guarantee. It's the, it's the first fruits. It's the down payment. And his rising into heaven and sending the Holy Spirit down into his people, the new covenant, is what Paul uses the language, the down payment of our, what we look forward to. So in all of the New Testament passages, any, any discussion of, of what happens to people who die has to be based around Jesus himself. And he, he sets the pattern. He sets the standard. So we, we conform what happened to him happens to us. Judgment was always seen as happening at the final judgment. Daniel 12 talks about it. We just read in Corinthians, when Jesus comes back, he'll judge. He talks all his parables about the end of the age, separating the sheep and the goats, all of that stuff. The big thing that gets people is the story, the parable that we learn as kids in Luke 16 which is the rich man Lazarus. If you turn to Luke 16, Jesus is going, He's teaching, and He says this in verse 19, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. All right, now He's just set the two most contrasting things you can think of in that world. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him off to Abraham's side. In the Old Testament, when you died, it's talked about being gathered to your ancestors, gathered to your fathers. That was 
one of the main descriptions. So Jesus, again, picking up on that, he was carried to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, or Hades, or, or the grave, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. In other words, one little drop from Lazarus' finger of moisture would, would um, satisfy his, his agony. Verse 25, But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, the question is, is Jesus, is this fact or fiction? I mean, is Jesus recounting an actual event from an actual experience that two actual men had or is Jesus telling a parable and the meaning of the parable is even supernatural appearances of the undead won't turn someone back to God if they're turned away from him in this life people have said that, that argue that it's not a parable they say one he doesn't say it's a parable and two he gives Lazarus a name so that's pretty much the argument um, I don't know if that's an especially strong argument. It implies that Jesus just, God forbid, he named somebody in a story he's telling. But also, the thing that's really interesting is people that push this as a literal description or, or a historical description, they rarely talk about Father Abraham being the judge or the, the one who has this active role. It's almost like, I mean, there's no mention of God. It's, it's Abraham. And so, if as a, as a Jewish illustrative, almost like folk story parable, this would be perfectly in line with what we see in, in rabbinic teaching. You know, giving a fictional example, using, or using historic characters from the Old Testament, telling a story. Rabbis did this all the time. You know, Elijah and this man were walking and this happened and then this happened. It would fit in. If Jesus is giving a historic example, and if you press this for, for a dynamic of the afterlife, then it raises a whole lot more questions to me than it answers. Why is Abraham the guy who's the, you know, and, and how is there a divide? And, and so is the grave divided into two? And why is this guy punished now and Lazarus receiving his reward now when everything in Jewish history talked about the reward being resurrection? Why, in other words, people have come to this story and built their idea of the end and then filtered the rest of the Bible through it or ignored the rest of the Bible. To me, it seems much more likely, and if you read New Testament commentaries on Luke, the idea of this as a general parable or a general story is that you don't push parables for all the details. You don't go to a parable looking for an, a systematic theology of the afterlife. The main point is the main point, and the main point in this is Jesus saying, if someone's heart is so hard that in this life they can see a beggar who's filled with sores at their doorstep and they can live in luxury the whole time, then even someone coming back from the grave 
is not going to change their heart. They, they don't have a problem with, with intellectual comprehension or, or anything. They, they have, they're, they're evil and wicked. They, they need to repent. They don't need a ghost show. And that's what the guy's asking for. Now, it's interesting. I think Jesus is drawing on an event that did happen, but not in this section. I think he's alluding to, I'm not positive, but it's, there's enough parallels that I think he's alluding to a very well-known thing that happened back in 1 Samuel chapter 28. This is a passage I've never heard preached on. But I think if you paired it with Jesus' story right there, it makes a little sense. 1 Samuel chapter 28. And starting in verse 11, just what's going on here in 1 Samuel 28 is at the end of King Saul's reign, he's already been, God's basically said, you're, you're not going to have the kingdom, you're done. Back all the way and back in chapter 13, God told him he'd chosen somebody else. And so you see Saul, instead of repenting and turning to God in, in, in brokenness, he, and that's what David would later do when he was confronted with sin, Saul became more and more hardened in his sin and more and more paranoid and more and more tried to shift the blame, tried to get out of whatever he had to do. He, he just, you see him go down this road to destruction. And at the end, he goes to, he wants to find out, he wants to, to find out what's going to happen. And he goes to find a witch, a medium, a sorceress, someone who speaks to the dead. That's what the word is. Someone who raises dead spirits and talks to them and finds out the future. Now in the Bible, this was in, back in Deuteronomy, God specifically said, do not do this, do not practice it, do not tolerate it within your people because, not because it was fake charlatan work, but because it was real and who you were receiving information from was not who God wanted you to receive information from. The problem with sorcery in the Old Testament wasn't that it was just, it was fake and superstitious. It was that the spirit world's real, but not all the spirit world's good. And, and there's evil in the spirit world. And so it was this, this warning, this stern warning that God gave. Well, King Saul had, had driven out all of the people who practiced divination from the kingdom. But then now when he, when, when, when he needs to hear something, and he doesn't get it from God, so he decides to go and, and call up a spirit to, to tell him what's going to happen. Verse 8 Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult or bring up a spirit for me, he said. Bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off all the mediums and spiritists from the lamb. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? In other words, is this a sting operation? You know, I'm not going to fall for it. Saul swore to her by the Lord. Bad idea. Swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, who shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel. Now Samuel was dead. He was Saul's advisor. He was the last judge of Israel. He was the one who had anointed Saul as king and then told Saul, God has removed your kingdom. Bring up Samuel, he said. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit or spirits, that word, or ghosts or whatever. I see something coming up out of the ground. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel. Old man wearing a robe. Got to be Samuel. 
Saul knew it was Samuel. He bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams, so I've called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what He predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out His fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. When the woman came to Saul and saw he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your maidservant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to. Now please listen to your servant. Let me give you some food so that you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house. She butchered it at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night they got up and left. So here you have in the Old Testament this encounter where a, a, a witch, a sorceress, whatever you want to call her, brings up the spirit of the ghost of Samuel. The Hebrew word that's used there, ov, ov, it's the word for ghost. Um, the text in the text, we don't have anything that would lead us to believe that this isn't Samuel speaking. The text refers to him as Samuel. He talks about events in his life, events that he. So, this has given a lot of people problems because they said, you know, the Bible doesn't. The Bible condemns this. Well, yeah, the Bible condemns it, but it doesn't condemn it because it can't happen. It condemns it because it can happen. And in this case, the question that people have asked is: Is this? Was this really the ghost of Samuel? That, that God allowed to come and speak and, and give this final prophetic like message of doom to Saul? Or is this all a counterfeit evil spirit that this woman had called up like she normally does? Because that's what she did. I mean, she was used to this. I think the, the big thing that argues for it being legitimately Samuel's ghost that God allows to be raised up is the woman's reaction in verse 12. I mean, she flips out when she sees this. Now, we don't know if she did that every time she raised up a spirit, but that would be kind of odd. It, it seems like if this is what you do, this is your routine. And so one of my professors, Jeff Niehaus, Old Testament professor, when he was teaching on the prophetic books at Gordon-Conwell, he said, he said that he thinks that this, this is an example of God giving her a taste of the real, of, of the actual spirit of God and his power in, instead of her usual, which was speaking to false spirits or counterfeit spirits. Saul had an encounter. Someone came back from the dead and told Saul a word from God, and, and it didn't change anything. At the end of the day, you've got to go with what does the text say, and just as important, what does it not say? Because what it doesn't say, a lot of times, will give us clues as to what the intent of the author is. If the text doesn't say something at all, doesn't mention it, then that is big flashing sign from the author saying, I don't intend to talk about this. I'm not interested in this area that you're asking. And so we have to, what we have to do with that is 
kind of do what the Jews did in that interim period, which is hold things in sort of a loose hand and say, I don't know if I can nail down all of the dynamics of the afterlife because the Bible never gives a, a systematic presentation of it. It gives hints, it gives glimpses, but every time it gives a glimpse that seems to suggest one thing, it'll give another glimpse somewhere else that, that says, hold on, don't, don't hold that too tightly. And I think that's what passages like this in Samuel and the story of Lazarus and the rich man in the New Testament, one of the things that they serve to do is not tell us what happens after death, but tell us how we should live now using the unknown to illustrate the known or to, to illuminate the known. So is the grave divided? Well, if it is, you're basing that on Luke 16 story. I'll just say story. I won't say parable. I'll just say story. You're basing that on one passage. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. Nowhere else in the New Testament is it mentioned, and nowhere in the Old Testament is it mentioned. So that's an awful lot of weight to put on one story that may or may not be an actual description and has all of the the telltale marks of a rabbinic illustration rather than actual history. So for me, Scripture doesn't seem to teach this systematically overall in in a holistic manner. So I I just kind of leave this as, I don't know, the grave, Sheol, Hades, it's the place where the dead go until the resurrection. Scripture chooses to be silent in certain areas. Yeah. Now, one thing we do know is in the New Testament, when it talks about believers dying, the question is, do they do they are are they what what is their state while they're here? And in the New Testament, we get the sense that Jesus is Lord of all, and the exalted Christ reigns over everything. And so, without having to draw a, a Tim LaHaye chart where you have Jesus going down into the dead and bringing believers up into heaven, sort of going around this timeline that we're in, getting them to heaven from the dead, and then coming and bringing them back. It just makes more sense to say Jesus as the exalted Christ. Um, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father has no limitations anymore. He can be with His people through His Holy Spirit. He's the Lord over all creation. And so He is Lord of all, including Lord of the dead. So people who die in the Lord die and go to be with Christ. Because He's... he's the, they, they are with Him in faith. So even death can't separate us, like Paul says, from the love of Christ. So we don't have to posit, well, when you die, when believers die, they go to heaven to be with Jesus and everybody else goes to the grave. There, you, can, you, don't have to, you don't have to push for that level of detail. You can say, everyone, when you die, even if you're in the grave, even if you're in the land of the dead, even if you're in Sheol, you, if you're a believer, you're, you're with Christ. So even the dead who are seen as dead in the land of the dead, not in raised up, not in their reward, you see them still in the presence of Christ, in the presence of God, because God's presence extends everywhere, even to the grave. The only place that will be away from God's presence that we get from the Bible seems to be this final, away from me, I never knew you, residence. Where is that place? Not where God is. That's, that's all you need to say. Wherever God is, that's not there. So, 
uh, I've given you a paragraph from Ben Witherington under the bodily resurrection. It talks about the focus in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the famous passage about the resurrection of the body. 1 Corinthians 15 is... You, you, can't, you have to do a lot of explaining away and, and reading into a passage if you're a, uh, let's say, a modern liberal mainline pseudo-Christian who teaches that there's no resurrection from the dead. Jesus really didn't rise. He, his spirit just filled the disciples' hearts on Easter and they got new spiritual life. 1 Corinthians 15 just shreds that. Um, just you can't hold to that no matter how many PhDs you have in New Testament if you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus you are not a New Testament theologian uh, what we see 1 Corinthians 15 the whole chapter is about the resurrection of Jesus as being raised from the dead and then in verse 35 Paul talks about after saying hey if there's no resurrection there's no need to keep going with this show like it's everything I'm doing is waste if there's no resurrection then Jesus didn't rise if Jesus didn't rise then we are all sunk um, there's no point in any of this then he's going to go and talk about the resurrection body verse 35 but some may ask how are the dead raised with what kind of body will they come everybody asks that question you know if you're talking about a literal resurrection what's it going to look like and Paul goes on to say how foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies when you sow you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God, gives it, but God gives it a body as He has determined into each kind of seed He gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. The splendor of the heavenly body is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and the stars differ, star differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised up imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now some people have taken that phrase spiritual body to mean and N.T. Wright gets into this when he deals with this passage in Surprised by Hope, that spiritual means non-material. And N.T. Wright uh, talks about, used, goes to what the Greek word that's used here, it, the word used here doesn't mean spiritual as in non-material, it means animated by the Spirit. The purpose in creating people, people were not people in God's image until Spirit entered into body and became a living soul. And so what Paul is going out of his way is to show that we don't. All he can do is point to, to the way his audience in Corinth would have understood nature, saying, "Look, not everything's the same. Obviously, you know, stars are different than the moon, and plants are different than people, and people are different than fish. Everything's got its own its own place in God's ordering of creation. Well, the resurrection body it has its own place as well, and it'll be as different from what we have now as those other things are." And so all we can do is point and give analogy and, and sort of hint at it. But the, the, I'll give you Witherington's summary here. He says, Christ is the eschatological Adam, meaning the end times Adam, the new Adam, started the human race over again, and he was obedient even unto death. As a result, after his death and resurrection, he became a life-giving spirit. 
The first Adam merely had natural life. The second Adam was a dispenser of the sort of life only the pneuma, and that's the word for spirit, only the spirit can give. He gained this capability by himself being the first fruits of the resurrection. In a sense, the eschatological Adam is starting a new creation, being the first fruits of the dead. But in another sense, he is the end and goal of the human race. There will be no more human founders after him. He brings in the eschatological age, the new creation, the end of God's plan. So everything, again, it all centers on Jesus. And it's all about, in chapter 15, we looked at it last week, is the thing where Paul then goes on to say, look, I'll, I'll tell you a secret. In the twinkling of an eye, in a flash, bam, we'll be transformed, we'll be changed. At that last trumpet, at the resurrection, at the end, that's when God will renew and restore and everyone will be included. Not even death will separate you. And so he goes on to give the death taunt in verse 55. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? So the hope, the, the, the promise of resurrection, the prototype of resurrection, all of it was what we see in Jesus. And it all points forward to the fact that bodily resurrection and judgment of humanity is the goal for personal eschatology as well as corporate eschatology. That's what it all culminates in. We saw Daniel 12, that the righteous will shine, the wicked will suffer. Isaiah 26, 19, we looked at when we looked at the prophets. Isaiah talked about the earth giving up its dead. Hades, the grave, Sheol, giving up their dead and, and being death being swallowed up by life. All of that is what God's aiming for. Um, even in New Testament ethics, Verse in 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 6, when Paul's speaking about, he's, he's taking on different uh, sins that the Corinthians were sort of rationalizing. In 1 Corinthians 6, they're rationalizing things like gluttony and things like sexual immorality, specifically sexual immorality, because they, their whole point was in 1 Corinthians 6, hey, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. Our bodies just, you know, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy both of them. You know, it's no big deal what we do with our body. And Paul was saying, no, don't you realize your body is a temple? Then he goes on to say, and the God who raised up Jesus from the dead will also raise up your bodies as well. Your body matters. Your body, it, it does matter how you treat, how you do, uh, how you look at your bodily existence is how you look at the image of God because it's you in your bodily existence that is the image of God. So he's saying, you are part of Christ. Would I take Christ and unite him with a prostitute? By no means, so why do you go do that? So the ethics of the New Testament even are grounded in the resurrection. Not just eschatology, but current ethics, how we live in light of that. The last section in, in Surprise by Hope, the last like, couple of chapters are all about, okay, how do we live in light of the fact that not, God's not going to just come and blow up the earth and take us all to heaven. He's going to come and cleanse the earth and refine the earth and wipe away all sin and judge all evil and vindicate and restore the righteous. How do we live in light of that? And, and if Jesus is the bridge between the now and the not yet, and we're living in Christ, but we're living in the now, how do we bring the not yet into the now? How do we live as resurrection people? That's where the whole last section of Surprised by Hope he explores. So, again, two more quotes from Witherington that I thought were good. He says, The resurrection ushers the believer into a kind of life that is far superior to the natural life that Adam experienced even before the fall, and certainly is a kind of life that totally eclipses what we've seen through Adam. 
Paul wishes the Corinthians to view resurrection and new life in light of this salvation historical process. Then he goes on in, in a previous page, Witherington was addressing the question of, you know, what about the wicked who are resurrected to eternal punishment rather than life? He says, if one has not participated in the process of being conformed to the image of the Son in this life, it's hardly to be expected that one would get the final installment or completion of this ongoing process later. In other words, the whole goal of salvation is being conformed to the image of Jesus in his resurrection body. And, and that's the goal. When Paul talks in Philipp, the famous passage in Philippians, this was another one that I did a paper on in seminary, is the passage of saying, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on striving for the upward calling of that in Christ Jesus. That, what Paul's speaking about, that perfection that he says, I haven't attained, he's not talking about moral perfection or, or, or he's not being humble. What he's saying is, in, well, here, let's look at it because my memory might be faulty. Look at Philippians chapter 3. I've heard this preached or taught so many times as like um, just saying, you know, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And even Paul admitted he wasn't perfect and... That's not even what Paul's talking about here. When he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's not talking about I'm not a good Christian or I'm not a perfect example because he goes out of his way in all of his letters to say things like, follow me as I follow Christ. And, you know, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul has no problem putting forward himself as an example of someone to live like. So it's, that's not what he's talking about. He even goes on later in that section to say, now all of us who are perfect should take a view of such things. Verse 13, if you have NIV, it says mature, but that word mature is the exact same word as the word for perfect up in the previous. He's using it in two different senses. Regardless, the perfection that he's talking about, just look at the previous, you know, when, when, whenever you look at a passage, look at what comes before and what comes after. What comes before right here in verse 7 Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. But I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. That was Paul's goal. And then he has to be very quick to say, not that I've already done all this. Because he hadn't. He hadn't died, and he hadn't been resurrected. He'd done the other stuff. But that was still the process that he was looking forward to, is, is, is the resurrection from the dead, this event. So, corporate eschatology, personal eschatology, it all points towards and centers on the resurrection of Jesus and the promise that when he returns, he will raise the rest of the dead. And, and that's the overview of all eschatology, whether there's a thousand-year gap in there where he's doing stuff, Again, secondary issue. Uh, whether there's a rapture before the act, again, that's a, what's the word, tertiary issue, a third level. That's of even less significance. What's important is when he comes back, he's going to raise the dead, judge the world, and set everything right. 
And that's the main point that N.T. Wright makes in Surprised by Hope. It's the main point that all of the biblical passages that we look at point to is God has to fix and make even better what went wrong in the beginning. And you see it, it's, it, Scripture has a great inclusio. Inclusio is when something begins and ends with the same subject or the same word or phrase or thought. Scripture begins with God creating a paradise where He dwells with His people in a garden-like setting. And then it ends in Revelation 22 with God dwelling with His people in not just a garden-like setting, but in a city, a new creation that also has those garden-like features, tree of life, the leaves of healing of the nation, the river, all of this stuff. So Scripture begins, and it doesn't end where it begins. It ends on a higher note than where it begins, but in a similar fashion, in other words. So, so it's, it's the two-garden inclusio, uh, the garden of Genesis, and the fall is, in the end, the garden of the new Jerusalem, the resurrection, the God dwelling with His people. So what do we do then in the meantime with the question of this? You know, like what happens when I die? What's going to, you know, where, where do I go when I die? Uh, I, I gave you on the back of this a quote from uh, Stanley Grins, the uh, theologian who is now here. He died recently, so he is with the Lord in the realm of the dead. Uh, but you'll get to meet him when we're resurrected. You can ask him what he meant if you have questions. But the, the, he, he writes this, and I want to I read this in full because I think it's good, and just so I have it on the CD. He says, We must be cautious in approaching all texts that some theologians interpret as providing information about the status of the dead. The biblical authors offered only sketchy information about the situation of the dead. We know that all humans will be present at the eschatological judgment, it gives you Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Peter 2. Consequently, death does not simply mark the end of personal life. Beyond this general statement from Scripture, we glean a special hope for all believers. Above all, because we know that at His return we will be united with our Lord, we may rest assured that even in death we are secure. Our greatest enemy is powerless to separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ. Consequently, in the extremity of death, we remain surrounded by God's loving presence. In the New Testament understanding, the believer does not enter into the completion of salvation in some intermediate state at death, but only at the coming of the Lord at the consummation of history. As George Ladd rightly concluded, while the condition of the righteous dead may be described as blessed, the entire Bible witnesses to the fact that the final redemption must include the resurrection and the transformation of the body. The goal of our hope is the resurrection, not an intermediate state. The resurrection, not death, is the doorway to participation in the fullness of life. Only the assurance of joining Christ in resurrection unmasks the mystery of death and dissipates the terror of the unknown beyond death. When walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil because the one who has already gone through death accompanies us. Now it's from his systematic theology textbook. Um, so, I could not agree with him more. When we're talking about eschatology and personal views of heaven, hell, Hades, Sheol, what, all of that, uh, I just put the note, we need, flu we need fluidity, ambiguity, and open imagination when thinking about the biblical descriptions of the end. Whether we're thinking about corporate descriptions of the New Jerusalem, 
the, the you know, Revelation presents Jerusalem, for instance, as a, a, a gigantic cube that's half the size of the continental United States, if you do the measurements. It's a giant golden cube, but it also has streets and rivers and trees. How can that be? Well, I talk about in the Revelation DVDs, in apocalyptic writing, you use words and images that go beyond what you can picture to point you towards them. Like N.T. Wright says in Surprised by Hope, he says, eschatological passages in the Bible are like road signs. They point you towards what's coming ahead, but they don't give you a detailed, exact snapshot of it. And so when we're looking at what the Bible teaches on the end, if we can hold that, and if we can hold things in tension, like not having to nail down every detail, then I think it keeps us more faithful to Scripture because then you don't have to bend Scripture to make it say something to match with another Scripture. You can just let it say what it says, take in the big picture, and then leave the other details to God. But it's, it's huge hope. It's a huge hope. The resurrection. It's one of those that um, when, whenever we face death, I've had to do a couple of funerals before, and, and both times I, I, I made a point to tell the people there this, what we're seeing, whether it's a body in a casket or a woman's at a graveside, you know, I was saying this is a continual reminder until Jesus returns that God's not finished. The fact that there are, every time you pass a cemetery, you pass a monument, the reminder of the fact that God's not done yet with creation, that this isn't all there is, and it's not that they're in a better place now. No, no, the creation itself will be in a better place when God comes back and restores it. As for where they are right now, that we leave up to a just and holy God. Um, but what we do affirm is it's not done until creation is restored, and that includes bodies. Um, and so, you know, people who say, the, the, um, a mother who lost her college-age student in a car accident that my family was close friends with, she was found a, do, doing laundry a few months after the accident and found a pair of his boxer shorts in the laundry or something and just broke down and crying. And, and she's talking about how, you know, she was just, it hit her that she'd never hold her son again. And, and the hope of Christians was to be able to say, no, you will hold him again. You will get to hold him again. Because you, he will, you, we will be together in Christ. And that's why I say it, you know, I said it tongue in cheek, but it's true. You will meet Stan Grins, and you will meet any other Christian that you know who's died and who's with the Lord. And, and get to enjoy them forever. And all of the millions of Christians you've never met before and, and all of those things. So the hope that we have is all based in Jesus and the fact that we will be with Him. And if we're in Him, then we are already part of that new creation where everything's headed. When you read and when you look at the end, passages that speak to the end and speak of it, there is, it seems to imply that if anything, things will be more clear. When Paul talks about we see now through a glass dimly, but then we will see as we are seen. And, and so if anything, I, some people have said, well, if you have knowledge of evil, then that means we'll commit it again and this and that. I don't see how that follows necessarily. Um, necessarily. Jesus has knowledge of evil, and he didn't fall, and he is who we are to model after. And So, I mean, I look at it as, now, you know, some people say, well, when I die, I'm going to get to ask God every question I've ever wanted. Well, I mean, the Bible doesn't really say that either, you know. Like, we just have to trust that, you know, you're, you're going to, you're, you're, it's, it's what I've, the thing that I've had to settle on um, more than anything else is 
everything about life that we know of now that's good will be better. And everything that we know about life that's bad will be gone. And I can't imagine what that's like right now. I don't know anybody that can. We, we don't have, we can't understand a world without evil or suffering or sin. We just, we can't understand it. Um, it's far easier for me to understand a world full of evil and suffering and sin. You know, the reality of hell, I've never, that's never bothered me because I've known that I'm never going there. I've always known the Lord as my Savior. But the reality of heaven has scared me all the time thinking about it because I'm like, oh, I can't even imagine that, you know, oh, how will that not be boring? Or how will this not be? Or what, what's, when it's all said and done, where's it all going? Literally, those are the questions that have kept me up at night is questions about heaven. And, and can I really, God, can I really trust that it's going to be that? It, there, is, there is this genuine fear of the unknown. Even if we are, have every reason to believe the unknown's good, there's still some anxiety and trepidation about doing it. And so like when Christians talk about, um, you know, I, I look forward to death. I don't mind at all. I'm ready, this and that. I, I don't doubt that for some people, you know, because I think God can, the Spirit can just give you that like you did with Paul. But for the average believer, I'm, you know, I always encourage people, hey, it's okay to still not want to die. You know, death is still the enemy. Like it, it's, it, we should never say, well, death is just the transition from this world to the next. It may be just a transition for us now that Jesus has gone through and blazed the trail, but it's still an enemy. It's a beaten enemy. It's an enemy that we know won't have the last laugh, but it's still an enemy. So it should never be, you know, people talk about funerals should be celebrations. I don't think so. Uh, Jesus wept when he saw Lazarus dead, and he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. So, uh, you know, if we are put in the face of death and, and the consequence of the sin and suffering and the fall, I think we have every right to mourn and grieve. and Just what we don't need to do is have despair. And beyond that, it's, it's, up, to, it's up to the Lord. I like what my professor, Doug Stewart, Old Testament professor, he had a great quote. He said, Modern day Israel has as much to do with the end times as modern day Guatemala. And by that, he didn't mean that it didn't have anything to do with the end times. He meant that all nation states are equal in God's eyes because the church is in Israel, the church is in Guatemala, the church is in China, the church is in India, the church is in America. The, the, the consummation of history centers on God's covenant people. And what, what a political nation right now has to do with what's going on, Scripture, I don't see any any command in Scripture or even a hint in Scripture to look to that to, to see end time things.